Hello, beautiful people. This is Shaylin Foster, and welcome to another episode of Interior Motives. Today's conversation is with highly sought-after plastic surgeon, Dr. Stephen Bailey. We'll be unpacking his personal and professional journey, talking about latest trends in aesthetic plastic surgery, as well as what it means to redefine the paradigm of perfection. You don't want to miss it, so take a moment, relax, grab a cup of coffee or some tea, and let's talk. Dr. Stephen Bailey is a board-certified aesthetic and reconstructive plastic surgeon. He is a proud HBCU alumnus of Morehouse College and Meharry Medical College, where he matriculated on full academic scholarships. Dr. Bailey, who is also fluent in Spanish, graduated both with high honors and accolades affording him amazing academic opportunities in the field of medicine. Dr. Bailey had the privilege of training at some of the most rigorous high-volume institutions in the country. He completed a general surgery residency at UT Southwestern Medical Center and Parkland Hospital. During his seven-year training program, he completed two years of research in the plastic surgery department, publishing several peer-reviewed articles winning awards for scientific research from the American Burn Association, American Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, Texas Society of Plastic Surgeons, American Society for Reconstructive Microsurgery, and American Association of Plastic Surgeons. After completing general surgery residency, Dr. Bailey became a highly sought-after candidate for plastic surgery fellowship, interviewing at many of the top-tier training programs throughout the country. He chose to attend the number one plastic surgery training program in the country and remained at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Bailey has been exposed to every aspect of aesthetic and reconstructive plastic surgery and trained directly with many of the innovators and thought leaders in modern plastic surgery. Dr. Bailey is known for having a quiet confidence and warm, engaging bedside manner, which is patient's love. These attributes, coupled with his attention to detail, flawless execution of the craft of aesthetic plastic surgery and orthopedic hand surgery, makes him a highly sought after and multifaceted plastic surgeon. Dr. Bailey is a member of the highly acclaimed Crawford Plastic Surgery Team and currently resides with his beautiful wife and daughter in Kennesaw, Georgia. So without further ado, please give it up for the phenomenal Dr. Stephen Bailey. Good morning, Dr. Bailey. Morning, Shailen. How are you? Good, good. So it's really an honor and a pleasure to have you join me today. I am looking forward to what you have to share and all the information you're going to drop on me today. <laughs> this has been a, an, it's actually an interesting topic and I have enjoyed talking to you prior to about this, as well as kind of your your career and your journey. But I look forward to hearing you share more detail and uh, for our listeners to really enjoy what you have to impart to them. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm excited. I'm excited. Awesome. Awesome. So what, so how have things been? How's the family? There's been a lot going on. Yeah. We, we, we are doing well. My, my daughter is, is about to be six uh, in uh, February. Oh my so goodness. It's, it's, she's, she's growing and learning and, you know, kids are, are really amazing. I think the fact that that we get the honor of actually raising raising a child is fantastic. It's difficult work, but 
it's great when you see little small changes that you make, make a difference. I was helping my daughter do her homework the other night. And it's actually funny. She goes to a private school and they are pretty big on their educational piece. And she was, you know, why they have five, five year olds doing math problems like 69 minus 12 it beats me but she was getting frustrated initially because she got the problems wrong and I was trying to help her to see how if she just if she was organized and did it a certain way she could get the problems right and she went to school the next day and she came back and she was excited she was like I got all of my problems right and the teacher gave me a check check mark for everything and I got stickers and you know as a five-year-old, stickers are like winning the lottery. Wait, wait. So. Stickers are great for adults, too, okay? <laughs> I love a good sticker. I know. So, so it, was, it was really great to, to see that and the capacity of the, of the human mind. It's, you know, it's one of those things where you say almost, almost anything is, is possible. So um, I, I really have enjoyed spending the time doing things like that. Of course, you know, with the pandemic over the past couple months, almost a, a year now, yeah. things have drastically changed in terms of, you know, our ability to move around. And, you know, our vacation got canceled right as the pandemic basically started and traveling to see family members has been somewhat restricted. And, yeah. you know, the concerns of not only working in the health field right. um, and being exposed on a daily basis or possibly being exposed to people with COVID that are un, unknowing right. has really impacted our ability and desire to travel certain places just because you would hate to be the person that brings it to your parents or grandparents or great aunts, uncles, et cetera. So, yeah, definitely a, a challenge. You, know, you and your wife both are in the healthcare industry. So, yeah, I would imagine there's been lots of shifts and pivots that have had to happen over this past year. Yes, definitely. And then I think one of the downsides of people being stuck in the house, I mean, loneliness is through the roof. You know, there's a, a gentleman that I try to visit from my church, basically to kind of just check on him and make sure he's basically inside. He's an elderly Travel has been somewhat restricted and all the things that he enjoys have kind of been somewhat cut off just to make sure that we can get some groceries for him and anything else that he needs. Because when you think about the world and how connected things are, it's easy for young people to order things on Amazon and what have you. But when you're right. an 80-year-old person trying to navigate the Internet, they, right. they have no idea yeah. I, I'm looking at the phone that he has, and I think it's like a Samsung 4, and I'm mm-hmm. I, I'm not even sure what the in- internet capabilities are of that phone now with the right. size of the applications and things like that. So it's a different world for the elderly people. Mm-hmm. They have to look out for them now. And then the other thing is that people have been in their, their little silos, and they don't interact with people that don't think like them. So there's a lot of mm-hmm. closed-minded views. And I think one of the great things about America is that we were really a melting pot where people from different cultures, different ideas, different backgrounds could come together and all feel uniquely American. And I think to some point that ideal still exists, but it's not currently as optimized as I would like to see. 
I think right. that's the best way to say it. <laughs> right. right. We're hopeful. We're in a new administration and I, I'm definitely hopeful to things to come. Yeah, I think, you know, from, from my perspective, when I was a, a kid at, at one point, I wanted to be a United States senator. So I really thought about government in a different way. I've gotten a chance to meet two presidents and I've been to inaugurations and inaugural balls. And I think the thing that I always think about is that despite politics, the person who becomes the president is uniquely the president of all of the people of the United States. Absolutely. And I think that no matter what your politics and what your political beliefs are, that person has the weight of the entire government on their shoulders. They make decisions that put people's lives at risk and also help keep people's lives safe. They impact your economy, the world that you live in, how the government works, et cetera. And you really have to, I feel that you have to give that person who, no matter who he or she is, the benefit of the doubt and give them as much support as possible. Because the one thing that I do respect about all of the presidents is that they have to make really tough decisions. And sometimes they can't really disclose all of the information that they have to you about why that decision is made. And you will never know, at least in your lifetime, whether that decision that they made that you may agree or disagree with was truly the right decision because some of the information that is that decision was based on is classified and it will only be declassified, you know, 50, 100 years later. So, you know, it's a very tough position. I noticed that when you look at, at the presidents, no matter who they are, when they start, they look a certain way. And by the time they end, they look a little bit different just because, it weighs on a person that really cares about their their country and the things that they're doing and sincerely wants to see if their decisions that they're making are the correct ones. It weighs on you. And um, I could see how you lose sleep, you lose friends, you lose some of those connections that you rely on from family members, the typical outlets. You know, everybody has their outlet that they use to decompress. But if your outlet was going to the mall and hanging out with friends, as a president, you know, your outlet is lost, right? Right, <laughs> you, right. You know, when you go places, you have to have like 50 Secret Service people around. You have to drive in this in this car. I mean, what if you're a person? I remember George Bush saying that he loved to drive himself. Being president of the United States, he's not allowed to drive himself anymore. So the only place that he can drive himself is on his ranch. So it's like little things like that. And to me, that's something that speaks to me because I like to drive sometimes to decompress myself. So I can imagine that if you can never do that again, it gets kind of difficult. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. So definitely. So, and definitely the stress certainly is different being the leader of the free world, but even breaking it down to just leadership yep. in general, it's a difficult road. And I think sometimes we take for granted or don't realize the complexities and the stressors that, that folks are dealing with when they're in leadership positions, certainly. So talk to me about just you. You take me back, your family upbringing, your family of origin, your background, some of the things that 
you learned from your parents and the things, the values that they may have imparted to you? Yeah, so I'm one of three children born to Zita and Hugh Bailey. Uh, my parents are Jamaican, so they they instilled certain values in me that I think are culturally Jamaican. However, because I am American, those American values and ideals were also emphasized to me by my parents. I'm the I'm one of three children. <clears throat> I'm the middle child, and you know a lot of people hated being the middle child, but mm-hmm. I actually enjoyed it. Um, mm. I think it was something that allowed me to to grow and develop without having as much pressure on me. And I think that shapes who I am, meaning that I don't have to have the spotlight to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a lot of people who fight for that attention. But, you know, from my from my kind of experience, I think being being a background person is OK to me. I think, you know, it allows me to really focus on on results and what I mean by that. And I'll give you some examples that happened in in my life. Like, for example, I think I've always been a pretty big kid. I think being in I think when I was in fifth grade, I was probably about five, five, ten or maybe five, eleven. And I think, you know, people had a certain expectation of me when I started in middle school playing football, they, because of my size, they wanted me to be a lineman. And I knew that I was pretty fast and I wanted to be a running back. And I didn't get that benefit of the doubt. But through work on the field, I was able to move to the running running back position. So I think one of the things that, I, that I've noticed in, in my life, and I'll just say kind of my usual mantra, is that I got no benefit. You know how people say they get the benefit of the doubt? Right, right, right. I got the doubt, but no benefit. So that kind of pushed me to work to allow my work to speak for itself and to constantly, I guess, surprise people. You know, my my coaches were were constantly surprised that, you know, my grades were good enough to be in honor societies and stuff like that because they didn't typically associate being an athlete with... I guess that level of intelligence. But my parents, when I was growing up, my mom asked me, you know, do I have, how many toes do I have? And I said, 10. She said, how many fingers do I have? And I said, 10. And she said, how many ears do you have? And I said, two. How many eyes do you have? She said, two. She said, all of those things work? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, you have everything that you need to be the best. So I, I like yeah, I, I, I was held to a, to a higher standard. You know, I, I think my parents always felt as though, I think if you put in the work, especially, you know, in that, in that still that same theme of the American dream, if you put in the work, you can achieve anything. And that's something that I really benefited from in my life. I think the other thing that's kind of great about my, my upbringing, my parents were super sacrificial in everything that they, that they did for us. And the benefits of those things at the time, I didn't really see it, but it just reaped wonders. My mom, when I was younger, so in terms of the how I grew up, I, I was born when my dad was in medical school. So I lived a lot of places growing up. So I was born in Connecticut. I lived in Nashville, Tennessee, 
lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I lived in Silver Springs, Maryland, then to Hyattsville, Maryland, and then we moved to Alabama. And all those those moves were based on kind of different transitions. So when my dad, when we were on summer vacation, I was born in Connecticut. We moved back to Nashville to finish up school. When my dad went to residency, I forgot, Orlando. We lived in Orlando. I went to Disney World so many times that I think I actually... (laughs) didn't like Disney World. I think when we moved to Orlando, he was in residency and we moved to Fort Lauderdale when he was in fellowship. And then his first job was at Georgetown. So we moved to Maryland and we lived in Silver Springs for a little while. Going to school in Maryland was was great. We used to go to the monuments and do all those things that are traditionally you think about at the nation's capital, fireworks on the mall. I think those things kind of, you know, brought that American spirit to me. When I was, this is in the the late 80s, so the gun violence and people, you know, killing kids for their Jordans and starter jackets. When a kid in my high school or the high school that I was supposed to go to the following year was killed, my dad said, you know what, we're moving. And we left Maryland to move to Alabama, Huntsville, Alabama. I remember my friends at that time, they said, it was nice knowing you, man. You're moving in, You're moving to Alabama. You know, I've seen that movie Mississippi Burning and you guys are going to be, you wow. know, done for. And, you know, when I came to Alabama, I did not know what to expect. But basically from the things that people had told me, I was a little bit concerned. And yeah. I remember the first person that I met at school was uh, Rachel Seidler, and she walked up to my locker and she said, hey, how are you doing? She introduced herself and she said, you're new here. This is where your class is and it's over here. And it was great. But, you know, coming from that Maryland background, I was looking at her as though there was something wrong. Like, was she trying to look in my locker to steal my stuff or you know, was this a general, a genuine welcome or what have you? And I was pleasantly surprised in Alabama that I, you know, had a different experience than what was expected. Yeah. But I'll say some of the key things I think in my childhood that were really great in the way I grew up. One is I, you know, I played basketball and we had a city league and our team was pretty good. We had Steve Francis, the franchise, who played in the NBA. He was on our team. And as a as a kid, I mean, he was a dynamic player. I mean, you've seen kids play basketball at the fifth and sixth grade level, and it's nothing super exciting. Right. But this guy, he was scoring like 35 points in a game. I mean, oh, wow. yeah, I mean, he was, wow. he was at, at the at the time when we were when we were kids like that, he was playing high, high school kids and beating them. So it was great to play on that team. And we had we had a lot of fun. We played the championship and we lost that game by two points. And we felt as though the other te- team cheated. And my dad said, hey, we're going to take the team out to get pizza. And at that time, Pizza Hut was popular. So that's where we went. And when we got to Pizza Hut, we sat down and we saw the other team that we had just played. They were coming in to sit down. And I was like, man, why are these guys here, too? I mean, isn't it enough that we lost? And my dad said, I invited them. Right. And in my mind, at that point, (laughs) I was like, my dad is a fool. (laughs) I was like, why is he inviting these guys here? And he Mm -hmm. told me, son, basketball is a game. These people are not your enemies. They are just playing on a different team. 
Mm-hmm. And although at the time it wasn't something that I received. <laughs> yeah, right. As I got older, I realized the wisdom in those words. Yeah. We, we view so many people as enemies in our lives that are really not enemies and can't can actually be friends. Yeah, yeah. And that I learned, I think, really make me the person that I am. And I thank my parents for all the sacrifices. I mean, when I was a little kid, you would have thought that I was a bad kid because my mom was at school all the time. I mean, all the time. I remember there was a little scenario where my parents told me that I had to finish all of my schoolwork before I could go outside and play or watch television or what have you. So I started to finish my homework while I was at school. That sparked a parent-teacher conference because my mom said that if the work that is being given to me can be finished before I even reach home, then it's not challenging enough to allow my kid, my kid to grow in advance. And as wow. a kid, I was like, why is my mom like worried about this homework? Well, they came to an impasse. The teacher was said, this is the curriculum and this is what we have. And my mom was like, well, that's not challenging enough. So I got my own homework <laughs> from my parents. <laughs> right, right. So, I, yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. yeah. So doing two homeworks now. But that's the type of parents that I had. That's the type of upbringing that I had. And um, yeah. it was great. Yeah, they sound like extraordinary people that just had this strong spirit of excellence. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's that's awesome. So you you mentioned siblings. One, you're the middle of three. The, your oldest is that? Yeah. So boy? my my oldest sibling is my sister. She's Zania Narcisse. She actually lives in Huntsville. She's a physician. Okay. She does physical medicine and, and rehab. Okay, wonderful. My younger brother is Joseph Bailey. You know, at first, my brother, I, I'm I'm so proud of him because at first he was very. But I'll call the word is jokey. Like he, everything was kind of a joke, not really super mm-hmm. serious. And when he was about, I think, 14 or 15 years old, he said that he wanted to be an executive chef. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a time like when, you know, Bobby Flay and Emeril Lagasse and all these guys oh, are having TV yeah. shows. My brother got super serious about it. He ended up going to Johnson & Wales University in Rhode Island, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a really well-known culinary arts school. They kind of rival one and two with Culinary Institute of, of America. Yeah, I actually actually used to live down the street from the Culinary Institute of, yeah. of America. Yeah. So it's good good food. Like I, I went to I went to visit him there. And it's a it's a different setup. I mean, like, you know, their classrooms are restaurants and kitchens and, you know, you 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 go in there and, you know, somebody's taking their final exam on front of the house stuff and you're ordering things on a menu and they're managing the dining quarters and making sure things are run properly. I think one of the things that people that are not in that business think is that it's something that it's easy to do. And it just happens that way. Yeah, It's a definite specific skill and it really is an art and a science. Yep. It definitely is. I was just amazed. And my brother would describe how some of the people who are in the culinary arts program, you know, there are people who are crying in class every day. And I was like, why? And and then when I started to see Gordon Ramsay, (laughs) he said, that's what it's like in class every day. And then I was like, wow, I guess, you know, 
So he finished that program and he worked um, in a couple of restaurants. And I think my dad asked him to do some healthy food demonstrations for his patients. So he would mm-hmm. show them how to meal plan and stuff like that. And it kind of sparked him into doing things that were a little bit more medical. So he went back and became a registered dietitian. He worked with Nashville for the WIC program and worked inside hospitals to kind of make sure that that patients had access to healthy food choices and great meal plans, et cetera. And I think that time that he spent in the hospital, he wanted to do more. So he went back and he did a nursing program and got into the accelerated nurse practitioner program at Vanderbilt. And I mean, it was a tough program and he put it all together. And and I think it was a two-year program and was working full-time. And now he's a nurse practitioner. He works in Huntsville too. So he's crossed over to to medicine, the dark side. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. You guys are all in the field. Yeah. That is amazing. And I think, you know, a lot of times people look at it and say, oh, well, you're from a medical background, so your parents probably pushed you to do medicine. And I think it's the exact opposite. My dad didn't really push us into doing medicine, but he said that if you should do something that you enjoy, that you can be passionate about. If you do that, then you'll be happy doing whatever you choose. So um, he was always of the of the mindset of whatever you choose to do, be the best in it. If you're going to be a a street sweeper, be the best sweet sweeper that is out there. If you're going to build buildings or be an architect, be the best architect that you can be. So I think that is the kind of the mantra that they shared with us. Yeah, yeah, definitely that spirit of excellence for sure. So talk to me more about the academic journey and your experiences. I know you are a proud HBCU alum. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So I'm really proud of that experience. I think because um, when we moved to, to Alabama, despite the people in my environment being accepting and welcoming, et cetera, I think there I didn't necessarily see as much racism as some people in those, you know, scenarios have have felt. But my environment was almost completely white. And I think my high school, we had a total of 1,200 or 1,800 students, something like that. So, you know, in terms of seniors, when I graduated, I think we had 400 or 450 students, something like something in that range. In my classes, I may have been in classes with maybe two, at the most three Black students out of class sizes that are 30 or 40. So, and it's not that it was the different Mm -hmm. two or three black people in those classes. It was the same black people. Mm -hmm. So my group of friends that were African-American from school was very small. Of course, I knew that African-American people could do Mm -hmm. great things. My dad had a lot of friends because he went to Meharry, which is an HBCU. So all of the friends that he had, you know, that were physicians that Mm -hmm. we went to were black doctors. So I knew that that was possible. But I knew that that was kind of my parents' experience. So, you know, applying to colleges, right. I, I applied all over and got into some really great schools and got scholarships, et cetera. But when I went down to visit Morehouse, one, it was kind of like the pedigree of the school. But to have other African-American men 
that look like you, that come from backgrounds like you, that come from even diverse backgrounds that you've never seen before, all trying to reach and strive for excellence. It was an amazing thing. I think also just to see the the diversity of mm. kind of what you expect. There are some yeah. there are some friends that I had that grew up in the projects and you know didn't really have a great upbringing or great advantages in terms of things in life to friends that grew up next door neighbors to the bushes and their family was Mm -hmm. in oil or they had TV companies. And I think at the time when I was at at Morehouse, Evander Holyfield's son was was there. And I mean, it's just it's just it's a different it's a different it was a different experience. I mean, there were there were people (laughs) there was a guy there, for example, that his parents bought him a, a Rolex for his birthday. And because they didn't want his roommate to feel left out, they bought him one, too. (laughs) Why couldn't I have been the roommate? (laughs) Yeah, you know, and it's like, you know, when you're when you're trying to get the ability to get a parking pass to be able to park on one of the campus, you know, parking lots and you're trying to save your money to get for your car, get your car. You have students that get their Ferrari stuck on a speed bump. So it, it was just a diverse, a diverse environment. And it was really great really great to have people striving to get to the same point as you. I look at my friends from my same floor Mm -hmm. and I think my entire floor, everyone on my floor is a doctor, whether they are a medical doctor or a doctor of dentistry or doctor in one of the the arts or doctor in one of the sciences we have some md phds and some phds there and it's it's just it's just amazing when you think about it absolutely wow what a rich experience what do you feel like oh hold on i can't leave out i can't leave out my mahari experience so that was morehouse was my initial step into the hbcu world and okay. then I went to and one of the things I, I enjoyed about Morehouse, too, is that you had teachers that made it personal. Very personal. I mean, like, like call you up and find you. Yeah. When, when you're missing personal. Yeah. I, I, I had a had a teacher, uh, Dr. Cook, who recent, recently retired. He noticed that people were missing for spring break. Mm-hmm. He said, and spring break hadn't started yet, but they left early. He said that he was going to make the the lecture today so dynamic there was no there was no possibility that you would be able to pass if you missed today. <laughs> I had I had a, a teacher that there was a guy in our class that used to come late every day. He said that until this guy came to class on time, he was going to give us a pop quiz every day. Wow. We had a teacher that there was a guy who was missing to class. We had things like friends and family weekend at Morehouse where your friend, your friends and your family, or it was typically more so parents would come on campus and come to classes. This guy walked into class and the teacher called him a tourist. He said he was glad, <laughs> glad to see him from time to time. <laughs> it was good for him to visit today. Talk about a call out. Yeah. He told his parents that they should save his, save their money. <laughs> Until he was serious about school. I mean, I I had a a teacher tell me my biochemistry class, the pass rate on that class, I think, was like 50 percent or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, imagine we had biochemistry and it was an essay test. (laughs) 
an essay? Test? Yes, yes. We had essay on on biochemistry because some of the things that that he talked about, he made them theoretical instead of physical, so that you have to understand the concept. Like for example, the Krebs cycle, you know, the electron transport chain. Your final acceptor of electrons is is oxygen, and right. based on the number of trips, that's how many units of energy you can make with ATP. Well, he made up a scenario where you're on an alien planet, and the final acceptor is not oxygen; it's sulfur, or you know, it's one of the other's ions. So now you have to use what you know to calculate what it would be in these areas. Wow! So imagine so- doing that and having to draw out things in the Krebs cycle. Typically, a lot of these classes, the first thing that they would take off for this thing like penmanship and margins before they even got to your answers. Mm-hmm. So imagine going to med school when it's like now multiple choice and you're like, oh, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> My biochemistry teacher told me, he said, "You at, at the end of this scenario, you will have the same degree that I have because I graduated from this school. So he said that I don't let people pass who will devalue my degree. He said, because it reflects poorly on me. So he was like, everyone who gets out of my class is deserving, no matter what grade they come out with. They're much better than what their paper grade says. Wow, wow, that's incredible. And then it transitioned over to Meharry, where I had teachers who looked to me to be the next generation because mm-hmm. they said, you know, if I was injured or if I needed to have an operation and I look up on, from the operating room table and I see your face, I don't want to just give up the ghost. <laughs> wow. What was it like even being on Meharry's campus, knowing that you came from greatness, which was your dad? And just kind of the first week that you're on that campus and realizing, wow, my dad walked this campus. It was it was very surreal because, you know, my sister is a, a year and some change older than me. And she was actually born at Meharry. So because we grew up there as kids, some of those people who are still working there knew us when our, when we were kids. So for example, the dean of the med school was a classmate of my dad's and she knew us when we were children. So it is, it's amazing how those things come full circle and how you're, you are in classes being taught by teachers who taught your dad. So I, that experience was, was great to me. And in terms of how I approached those two things, they were a little bit different in terms of, you know, what I did in med school versus what I did in college. But man, I would not, I would not trade that experience for the world because I really feel like those opportunities really prepared me for life. Yeah. Did you ever feel any particular pressure or an expectation to surpass your dad or to, I guess, be a particular way in the medical space because of your dad? Not not particularly just because of my dad, but kind of just from an upbringing standpoint, you just always are striving to be the best. I had some teachers put that pressure on me in medical school that graduated from, from Morehouse. For example, my histology teacher was a Morehouse graduate. He pulled me to the side and he said, 
I know that you went to Morehouse. And I was like, yeah, I did. He's like, you're, you're not going to let these other students beat you then, are, are you? <laughs> He's like, because, you know, <laughs> yeah, I was like, you, you know, you got to be the at the top. He's like, you know, the test is coming up and I just want to make sure that you know that I know where you came from. So there's no excuses. You got to you got to be the best. <laughs> So I appreciated those little kind of pushes towards um, excellence. I'll tell you, my med school experience was great. I prayed really hard before I got into med school. And I prayed that my experience Mm -hmm. would be good. I prayed that the Lord would allow me to learn and be able to grow in knowledge to the point where I would be embarrassed because everything that would come out of my mouth would be correct. And he granted that in such a way that it was a blessing. I mean, my, when I finished med school, my, my GPA in med school was a 3.98. Wow. The, the, the class Very that I got a, a B in was calculated. And I told the professor that I was only going to study so much for this class because it was one credit versus the other ones, which were, you know, four and eight credit hours. So I was like, it's strategic. I may not make it as good of a grade, but I need it to be able to make, to maintain an A in my classes. And I'm telling you, I was so focused during that time period that probably for the the whole first semester, I didn't even check my grades. I would just go and I would study. My my schedule was simple. From eight to five, I was in class. From seven to or excuse me, from five to seven, I would sleep. And then from seven to two a.m., I would study. And then I would sleep from two to 6.30 to be able to get back to class at eight. And I did that Monday through Friday every day. Wow, that's incredible. So in terms of, I meant to ask you, you studied abroad. And so your abroad experience, was that yes. that was prior to med school? Okay. Tell me a little bit so, about what you um, learned. Uh, I, I, I did a study abroad program in Oaxaca, Mexico, which is kind of one of the older cities in Mexico, has rich culture. In the study abroad experience, we went to a university down there, Universidad de Benito Juarez, and we took classes mm-hmm. there at the university. But one of the things that was great about that program is total immersion. So we stayed with a, a family there and we stayed in their home and those inner those interactions at home were important. We walked to school <laughs> every day and you know in um the Mexican culture they have siestas so we would have school for mm-hmm. a portion of the day and then around lunchtime we would go back home so we'd walk back home and we would spend a little time with our family some people used it for napping but it was a lot of family time and then we would go back to school in the afternoon and finish everything up it was a great experience i mean one the family time i think when we think about the busy american culture spending time with with family there was was really key and important so much so that if you saw a taxi during the siesta time it was likely that they wouldn't pick you up because they were going home to spend time with their family. So, you know, walking to mm-hmm. to school 45 minutes every day in the hot Mexican sun, <laughs> it, it was a, definitely an experience. I got my first sunburn there and I didn't know what it was. Yes, uh, you know, in college, yes, I mean, we didn't know about sunscreen. 
but I, I also didn't know about sunburn. So I was wondering why my skin was hurting. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a great experience. Um, learned a lot, had some really great friends. It was interesting, different things that they put in our curriculum to make sure that we had a good understanding of working Spanish. So one, one of our assignments was getting a tour of the city, getting a tour guide to give us a tour of the city. Another assignment we had to plan a vacation for ourselves. So we had to talk to a travel agent, catch a bus, get a hotel, et cetera, do a vacation. We had to go shopping at the supermarket to get certain things. And their market, of course, is different from our market is open air market, kind of, I mean, with everything that you would expect from an open air market. Yeah. So it was a it was a great experience. And I think with that, the ability to communicate to my patients that were Spanish speaking, I think was great because, you know, my residency was in Dallas, Texas, which has a much higher Hispanic population Absolutely. than Huntsville, Alabama. That's awesome. That is definitely awesome. So, I mean, I know that your dad and people in your family were certainly inspirations in terms of pursuing the medical field. Was there anything else that may have informed or influenced your decision to yeah, go so, into you plastic know, surgery? I initially, when I went to med school, my dad is an OBGYN, and that's that's what I went to med school to, to, to do. And I my goal was to go there, learn, become great at doing this, and, and be able to take over his practice. And when I got to wow. medical school, I went to my OB rotation, I really enjoyed the operating room. It was actually a great experience to be in the operating room, even though it was tough. I decided to do some general surgery rotations and I enjoyed general surgery. And when I, in my general surgery rotations, I met a plastic surgeon. His name was Fouad Nahai. He did a, a lecture about plastic surgery. And one of the things that he discussed was doing esophageal repair, like the repair of the esophagus. People have esophageal cancer, they'll have to remove a section of their esophagus. Right. Talking about using the small right. intestine as a transplant and using microsurgery to disconnect a portion of the small bowel and reconnect it in the neck and use it as a conduit for the esophagus. And I looked at that and I had mm. no idea plastic surgeons did that. The things that I knew of plastic surgery at that point were, you know, breast augmentation and reductions and tummy tucks and stuff like that. But I had no idea plastic surgeons did these things. Right. So over the course of time, I actually kind of went through some changes. Initially in general surgery, I was planning to do cardiothoracic fellowship to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. And my exposure to cardiothoracic surgery led me to realize that the things that I thought were really exciting, when you do cardiothoracic surgery, it's the same thing over and over again. And you realize that cardiothoracic surgeons, even though it looks exciting, they don't like the excitement. It's kind of like taking off in a plane and landing a plane. You want it to be the same, as much the same as possible every time. And my, I had a mentor that gave a, a lecture and he talked about, and the title of his le lecture was, Is Cardiothoracic Surgery Dead? And he mentioned a lot of things that he pointed to and said that it wasn't dead. But from my mind, it really felt as though it was it was dying, meaning that, you know, they're moving to more minimally invasive things. The cardiothoracic surgeons that are out there are mm -hmm. not retiring. So the younger guys, difficult, more difficult for them to get jobs. And I said, man, this 
may not be what I think it is. So I started looking a little bit more into plastic surgery after that lecture, and I realized all the things that they could do. And that was truly exciting to me because plastic surgery meant that you could be doing different things every day, even though it was in the same field. Number two, they were one of those fields that was okay with technology and would push the envelope to try to get new things, to try to be able to do different things. And I felt like that was something that could truly keep my attention and force me to continue to learn and be great. So I kind of made that decision around the end of my third year. And because I was I was on an academic track, I did two years of research in the plastic surgery department at UT Southwestern as well, which was a whole different experience in its in and of itself. And I thought that if you thought surgery was hard and plastic surgery residency was hard, plastic surgery research was was very difficult. But yeah, that was the process that led me to plastic surgery. And I thank God for it every day. It's a great field. It leaves me with a sense of satisfaction every day. And having the ability to help patients, you know, I say it's a privilege for me to be there on some people's worst day of their life. Talk to me about your specialty. Yeah. Most of what I do, I do reconstructive plastic surgery, aesthetic plastic surgery, and hand surgery. And my practice is probably about a third of, of each of those things. I think uh, most of the bre- the reconstruction stuff that I do is breast reconstruction, but I still do lower extremity reconstruction and head and neck to a certain extent and different things across the body. So that, that deals with people who have breast cancer and need their breast reconstructed or pressure sores or cancer in different areas of their body that require some level of, of closure. And that's what the reconstructive stuff in it is. And then in that same category falls into things like breast reductions and cyst removals, lipomas, or just general, general plastic surgery. Then on the aesthetic side, the typical things that you would think of like breast augmentation, breast lifts and tummy tucks and Mm -hmm. lower body lifts, thigh lifts, brachioplasties or arm lifts. I think more and more we're seeing guys do surgery. So we're doing lower body lifts for them and gynecomastia type surgeries to kind of help with male breast. And sometimes, you know, little things on the on the face too, the face and, and neck, I think, especially now with this COVID thing, having people locked up at home and doing a lot of meetings via Zoom or some of Zoom. It's like, it's like the, the Zoom camera is amplifying things that people don't want to see. Yeah. And I think the part that has been somewhat paradoxical, I thought that it would be less surgery, but people are wanting to do more things now that they're actually at home and they can, they're working from home so they can recover from home. You see a lot of people who want liposuction and, you know, little things here and there, Botox and fillers and things like that, just to, to help fill out um, right. things that they, while they're at home. Low, low risk, low recovery, high, high bang for the buck type thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the other area I think that a lot of people don't understand is hand surgery. So hand surgery has always been a part of plastic surgery. Plastic surgery kind of one of, was one of the initial groups that started hand surgery. And, and the background of that is, is basically from the war and wartime injuries. If you think about your hands, they have blood, small blood vessels, small nerves, small joints, tendons, a lot of moving parts, and then skin that you have to kind of move around. 
And when you think about the, the surgery specialties that have that unique ability to deal with those type of tissues, it's plastic surgery written all over it. So the three avenues to which you can get into hand surgery is either through general surgery, orthopedic surgery, and plastic surgery. And I think each one of those divisions handles things slightly differently, but they're trained in the same aspect. So for example, for me, my fellowship was at Baylor and Baylor is a combined orthopedic and plastic surgery hand program. So in my fellowship, we did everything from fingertips to the shoulders. I mean, shoulder replacements, elbow replacements, fractures of all types, muscle repair, brachial plexus injuries, putting fingers back on what we call replants, like when you cut your fingers off and you go to the emergency room, they say, hey, you know, put it in some, you put it in a bag and put it in some ice. The people who were putting it back on, that was us. Right, right. I think a lot of people don't necessarily see that connection. But for me, it's great because you take somebody who's injured in a way where they couldn't be functional and you bring them back to a scenario where they can now be, instead of being dependent, they're independent, they're functional, they can go back to working and being a provider for their family. And it's a huge, huge thing. And I think it gives you a break too from some of the cosmetic things. For example, I think in cosmetic surgery, there are some things that are gray areas in terms of whether this is aesthetically pleasing or not, right? You may have something that is a family trait, like, for example, like your nose may be a certain way because everybody in your family is a certain way. Is your nose a bad nose? No, it works functionally. It helps you breathe and what have you. But it's something that you just don't like because you don't want that to be associated with you. Whereas with your hand, if you have arthritis, you can see the arthritis on your x-ray. You can see it based on their functional numbers from their flexion and extension. And you can see the impact that it makes on them functionally. So you can make it a plan as to how to treat that. So that's a lot more black and white. But I think it gives me a good balance of things to be able to see the functional aspect. And it actually just provides me another avenue to help patients. Absolutely. I mean, it's all transformative. Yeah. I'll give you two scenarios with the hand surgery that I thought was, I mean, this is why I do what I do. One, I had a, a young African-American male who's a glass worker and he had a large sheet of glass just shatter on him. It cut all of the extensors on the back of his forearm. So the muscles that allow you to open your hand and and open your thumb or pull them away from your body, all of those things were cut. So even the extensors that help you lift your wrist. He was seen at a, I think at, at two hospitals and because of his insurance status, he didn't necessarily get the most appropriate treatment. And when I saw him, he was, he was saying, man, I just want to get this done so I can get back to work and get back to gardening and get back to fishing. And I said, hey, man, we're going to try to work this out for you. So I went to surgery with him. We did an extensive repair of all of those tendons for him and got his skin closed. And it was really difficult because it was, I would have repaired him more immediately than when he presented to me. Right. So he went through therapy, which was tough. He was out of work for, for a while. And for somebody who didn't really make a whole lot of money to be out of, of work for several weeks was a big impact to his life. But I, but I saw him probably three weeks ago now, and I actually took a video of his hand because it was just so amazing. I mean, he was able to touch all of his fingers to his thumb, make a full fist, be able to lift things, bend his wrist, lift his wrist. 
And I, I was just, I mean, that is what we do this stuff for. Yes, that's your why. Yeah. I mean, it has, it has to be so rewarding. It's super rewarding. That guy came back to me and the last visit, he really just wanted to say thank you. And, it, and it's amazing that there are several patients that you treat and you have good outcomes. And it's kind of like that experience of Jesus healing the lepers when only one came back. That person, that one person gives you so much energy for the rest of the things that you have to face on a daily basis. It's like you can look back at that person and you can say, this is why I do this. Absolutely. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. So in terms of the shift uh, as it relates to like African-Americans or people of color seeking aesthetic or reconstructive surgery, so what's been the shift or the in terms of now, what are the prevalence rates of African-Americans and folks of color seeking this type of surgery? I think um, there are certain things that have, have changed the landscape. So one, I think the advent of social media really has made people a lot more aware of plastic surgery and who's had plastic surgery and why they look the way they look. And I think that has prompted, I think, a shift in African-Americans getting plastic surgery. I think the other things, I think people used to think that the cost of plastic surgery was so exorbitant that it could not be afforded. Yeah, or that it wasn't attainable. Yeah. And, And I think now, one, I think the I think overall in plastic surgery, people try to do things to make make the choices a little bit more affordable for patients. But two, things like payment plans for plastic surgery now exist through commercial entities that make it easier for people, not just African-American, but people of all types to, to get plastic surgery. Right. And then I think the downside of the affordability with plastic surgery that I see that gets a lot of people of color, I think, are having surgery with people who are not board certified plastic surgeons. Mm -hmm. There's a group of people called cosmetic surgeons. And I think most people view that as possibly those are plastic surgeons, but not all cosmetic surgeons are actually plastic surgeons and not, and, and some of them are board certified by cosmetic surgery, which is a less extensive route of training than cosmetic plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult for consumers to really understand that. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, due to the way that the laws are written, there are people who get away with with doing this that kind of ruin, I think, the name of plastic surgeons because I think people think that they're plastic surgeons. Mm -hmm. And it also ruins the trust that people have in doctors in general. Right. There are some people in my local area, for, for instance, there's a chiropractor that does liposuction and fat grafting and stuff like that. And I, and I think that's way out of their <laughs> His scope. scope. Like, how does yeah. that happen? How is he able to do that? Well, I think there are a couple things that, that have protected him. One, I think he does not, he doesn't brand himself as a plastic surgeon. He does cosmetic procedures. Two, I think in in our state, I think, you know, the, the means to get somebody removed from that aspect are not in place for chiropractic doctors. So in terms of regulatory. Uh, exactly. Okay. So their, their, their board does not regulate them like the medical boards do. Wow. 
And then lastly, in the state of Georgia, I think if you are if you are a doctor and you're offering people procedures, as long as they're, they consent to those procedures, it's legal for you to do them. Wow. wow. So it, it, I think it, it's, it's bad for patients because it makes them have to be very scrupulous with who they choose, but they don't have the education or the background to understand who is appropriate and who's not appropriate. So how do you, because I'm thinking of, there's so many trends out there and even more so with millennials or Gen Z generations that are really forging ahead and thinking, oh, I think I want to do this. I want to have some cosmetic or aesthetic surgery, whether it's breast augmentation or fat transfer to make their their butts bigger or liposuction, whatever it is. So how do you inform or how do you make folks in this, in these, I guess, spaces or or in this generation, just a more informed consumer? So I, I would tell them, one, don't go to the Dominican Republic. And I don't have anything against the Dominican Republic doctors. But if something happens to you, they can't help you here mm-hmm. because they don't have a license here. So the thing that's different about cosmetic surgery than surgery that you pay for via your insurance is that if you have insurance, you can you can bill through your insurance. But if you have a complication from cosmetic surgery or as aesthetic surgery, you're paying cash. And then you also have to have an established relationship with a physician. So imagine now that you've gone to the Dominican Republic and you've gotten some nasty infection that is eating away at your at your abdominal wall. If you had a tummy tuck, now you have to establish a a relationship with a plastic surgeon to take care of you. And if you need surgery or just a consult, it's going to cost you additional cash. Whereas if you had that same complication by a surgeon who was here in America, that person would be obligated to take care of you. Does that make sense? Right, right, right. So I, I think there are some some great doctors in the Dominican Republic and Mexico and all those places. Some of those doctors have even been trained here in the United States. But the standards of what their operating room is like and the things that they have to go in order to be certified and have cert- certified surgery centers down there is much less stringent than the United States. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I think that you should have surgery with a surgeon that you like. Because if they have, if you have a complication, that's when you will really need your surgeon, not if everything goes well. Because if everything goes well, you have surgery, you see that surgeon maybe once or twice, and then you go about your business and you probably will never see them again unless you want more surgery. Whereas if you have an issue, you will need to be able to have a good relationship with that person because you'll need to see them often until your issue is resolved. Thirdly, I think you should look at that that person's background and make sure that they have been trained appropriately. I think all that board certification is key because the board really is stringent about 
who they certify. There's continuing education that is required. They also review your cases and outcomes on a annual to, to you know two to three year basis. They also collect information from other physicians that are around you to make sure that you are also appropriate. They look at your website and what your advertising is like to patients, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So they do a lot of things to, to help protect patients. So I think that board certification is is really key. And then you should also ask that doctor if they do this type of procedure and if they do it regularly. So I think things that you do routinely, you get better and better at doing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So because I've had clients just from a therapeutic counseling perspective that are venturing into having these types of surgeries. So what would you tell like folks that are, you know, psychotherapists or counselors that are working with clients in terms of preparation? Like what would be some key questions to to ask them to explore in terms of their whys and what's motivating them to want to make some of these cosmetic or aesthetic shifts? Yeah, I think I think motivation for why they're doing this is really key. Mm-hmm. I think doing something to your body to save a relationship or to do it because somebody else wants it are definite red flags. I think, you know, I've actually also in covering for other doctors have seen patients who were in less than healthy relationships with people who were actually kind of either I couldn't tell if, if she was actually forced into surgery, if the gentleman that was there with her was like a, a pimp or something like that. But you have those, there are a lot of things that you have to look for when you see those type of patients. And I've actually seen patients and turned them down for surgery due to concerns um, for, for those, those reasons. I, I remember when I first started, I had this lady, she sat in my office and she talked to me about what was wrong with her breast and what she wanted. And when I looked at her breast, I said, your breasts look great. I don't see the problem that you see. And if I don't see that problem, I can't help you. And she said, well, I have cash and I can pay. And I was like, well, I'm quite sure you'll find someone to take your money. But I think if you do this, you will mess up the breast that you have and it's going to be a problem for you in the future because you want it to go really, really big. And I said that, you know, one of the things that I make a promise to every patient is that I will treat you like my family and I love my family. So I would never offer you anything that I thought was that would be bad for you or detrimental to you or change you in a way where it would be problematic down for you down the road. And she looked at me puzzled. I mean, she sat in the room for a long time after our consultation was over trying to figure out why I didn't take her money. And I told her, I was, I was like, listen, if you choose to go somewhere else and they do this for you and it turns out the way that I told you it turned, it out, turned out, it would turn out, I can still see you and help you, but I just don't want to be responsible for doing that to you. Right. Right. So there are red flags you have to look out for, especially in the aesthetic world. There are people that 
have like body dysmorphic disorder, right. which I think is a little bit easier to to spot than some of the other mm-hmm. kind of people who just have personality yeah. disorders. Yeah, I mean, I think therapeutically, I mean, that's a lot easier to identify. But what if it's just someone that's just like, you know, I, I just like the way this looks and I this is just what I want. And that's and that's pretty much how they're presenting. Yeah, I think I think people who know what they want, I think are fine. I think some of the red flags that I see is when people bring in a lot of pictures of celebrities that don't necessarily look like them. And they say they want to look exactly like that and they don't have a realistic expectation because, you know, I work with a scalpel, not a magic wand. So. I can't make you look like another person, but I can make you look like a better version of yourself. And if you're not happy with yourself, no amount of surgery is going to change that because in the mirror, when you look at it, it's still going to be you. It's just going to be a little bit different. Right. Right. I think that's huge because I think that there may be other surgeons that will have their clients or folks that are seeking augmentation to actually bring in pictures of celebrities or people that they deem as someone that they want to look like. Yeah. And let me be clear. I don't think that that is necessarily a problem, but the problem comes when somebody says, I want to look exactly like this person, or I want to have this person's nose. There are certain characteristics of your body that can only change so much. Right. So if it's something that is that is reasonable, like I think for breasts, one of the big things is trying to get good communication of how what size a person wants to be, because unknown to most women, cup size is completely made up. So that's why. What do you mean by made up? It's, it's pulled out of the air and put onto a bra. The reason you have to get measured when you try on a different bra from a different manufacturer is because B cup, C cup are not translatable. They're just made up. So when you look at the actual cup size, and this is something that I looked into for for quite some time, because being a guy, I had no idea about this until I started doing plastic surgery. Well, I don't think that a lot of women have any idea about it. Yeah, there's still like this vague, this vague or lack of understanding about the cup size. Even if you go get measured, even that can be off. Yeah. So imagine this. So you, most people know, you know, A cup, B cup, C cup, D cup, double D, F, et cetera. Right. When you look at it, if you have an, an F cup on a 32 band can be a D cup on a 36 band. Right. Is the actual same cup size, but it's named something different. So now imagine the, the difficulty you have now when you talk to a patient that says they want to be a D cup and they're a 38D, or excuse me, they want to be a, a, a D cup and they're a 32 and they are looking at pictures of somebody who's a 36 or a 34 and this is what they bring into you. Mm-hmm. So that cup size is different from that person. So that's why we try to get an idea of what they are looking at in terms of volume so we can kind of guide them towards the most appropriate implant choices because there's some things that go into the choice of your implant like the the width of your of your breast like the breast diameter the elasticity of your skin the amount of coverage that you have of your of your 
skin, basically your pinch thickness of how much fat and subcutaneous tissue you have at certain areas of your skin, because that helps us decide whether you'll be able to camouflage an implant when we place it in the pocket that we form surgically. So there's a lot of things that go into that aspect. And I think trying to have a conversation with patients in a language that we both can understand is the hard part. So sometimes the pictures will help in that aspect. But otherwise, when people are saying, hey, I want to look like Angelina Jolie, to me, that's like a a red flag. Not because Angelina Jolie is not beautiful. It's just that if you're not Angelina Jolie, then you're not going to look exactly like her. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. So talk to me about like just current trends. I know I mentioned before with the butt lift and the fat transfer, I know that that's become a big thing. Uh, Yeah. So, so talk to me about that as well as some of the other trends that are really popular now. Yeah, so the 360 lipo with with uh, a Brazilian butt lift is kind of you know one of the hot trends that are out there, and that basically involves liposuctioning the entire trunk to try to shape it, and then using the excess fat to place in the gluteus or place now above the the gluteus maximus muscle. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, one of the issues that we were having initially with people with having fat embolisms or pulmonary embolisms after surgery was when they're putting more of the fat into the muscle because some of those big blood vessels, that fat would get into the blood vessel and then get into your system. So now most of that is placed superficially in order to fill out the buttock and hip area. And that's a good trend. I think if it's done in the right way, it can be helpful. I think one of the things that I've seen with that, I always try to aim for natural appearing surgery. And I just think about the trend of women that are getting these surgeries when they're young. And then as they get older, their skin starts to stretch and and relax. And then you have a, a grandmother that now looks a hot mess because their skin can't tolerate the weight that was placed on them. Because one thing that people don't don't really think about with fat is that fat as a filler works great because it's natural, mm-hmm. but it also is natural, meaning that if you gain more weight, you'll gain weight where those fat cells are. And most people gain weight as they as they age and then lose some as they as they get to the kind of the older ages. So that fat will stretch out that area. And then they'll become deflated again when they start losing weight. So I always caution patients, especially if they have expectations that I think that are outside of where I think they should go, that they should probably just seek another another surgeon. Because I think I want something to be natural and safe and good looking. And I prefer just not to be involved with anything that this looks uh, unnatural. Right. So I think that's my stance on that process. I think everybody looks great with with curves. It's it's unfortunate that African-American women for so long have been kind of marginalized in the fashion world due to the natural curves. And now (laughs) that curves are are back in, in style, we've been pushed to feel as though we're not relevant the way that we are. However, you know, from a plastic surgery perspective, I think, you know, there are improvements that people can make that still look natural and still fit with their with their body type. Mm-hmm. Just have to be careful with what that's going to be down the line. Mm-hmm. I think some of the other 
new and kind of hot trends, I think, are minimally invasive things or um, preventive type minimally invasive surgery. So people getting radiofrequency microneedling or... Tell me about that a little bit. Yeah. So, so microneedling, it's basically, it's, it's like it sounds, it uses small needles to penetrate the skin. That process causes inflammation and collagen deposition. Pairing radio frequency with that actually tightens your, your skin as well. So it's been a good new combination to improve kind of your appearance of your of your face, neck, and decollete area. I think I've been using that for a little while, and I actually use it also on body areas where people have stretch marks and things like that to improve the quality of the appearance of those, of those stretch marks. Okay. So I think it's been a, a good adjunct. Sometimes people couple that with the use of, of PRP, which is kind of just a plasma-based product. When you spin down your, your own blood, you get a certain amount of your own platelet-rich plasma to use in those same areas where you treat it with microneedling. That actually also gives the, the benefit, almost like a stem cell effect in that area to help rejuvenate the skin. So that's a popular trend. And I think that that, that is actually something that's going to stick around. I think one of the things that people don't understand about skin and skincare in general, it's not typically a one-time thing. It's something that you have to keep up with over time. So you may have to get it done, you know, maybe two or three times during the course of the year to kind of continue to see the effects of it because it helps your skin turn over some and helps it tighten up some, helps it deposit some collagen some, and uh, gives you a good glowing effect overall. I think other trends... For the face, people are doing buckle fat pad removal. So you have a fat pad that's in front of your parotid gland, which is down at the bottom of your kind of like the angle of your jaw. Mm -hmm. If you go a little bit in front of that, that's usually where your your buckle fat pad is. Mm -hmm. It helps make your face, if you have a full round looking face, it kind of helps add a little bit more definition by pulling out some of that fat that's in your cheeks. I think that that trend is actually helpful for the appearance of your of your face. I always caution people that when we look at an aging face, one of the signs of an aging face is the reduction of fat. So you have to be careful with the amount of fat that you remove. But I think it does add a, a good appearance to your overall face and helps define your cheekbones. Mm, interesting. Wow, this is so fascinating. I could probably talk about this for a minute. <laughs> but in terms of like the Botox, folks from getting it, you'd see celebrities on TV as well as maybe people in person. And Botox, you know, you could tell because they, there were, there would be that frozen appearance, mm-hmm. um, particularly around the forehead and the eye area. And so now I'm hearing more about Baby Botox, which is supposed to present with a more natural appearance. Like, what, what's your thoughts about that and who would be a good candidate for that? So I, I, I know that people have to use these different terms for, for branding. I don't like baby Botox because I think people think about giving babies Botox. I know, and I, I know. But I think the way that they've been talking about baby Botox is the way that I've always been giving Botox. I think it's important. I think that in your face, you need some level of movement to convey 
emotion. Mm -hmm. So I never really want patients to have a super frozen face. So it's really just with the the amount and where you uh, put the Botox, either in the gobella region or the forehead or periorbital region. I mean, I think there are so many uses now for Botox. I think if you get somebody who's in their late 20s, early 30s, and get them started on Botox, I think it's great for wrinkle prevention. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people end up getting these deep rhytids or wrinkles due to kind of just the amount of time that they've gone making those same facial expressions. And I think if you get the Botox in early enough, it helps reduce some of those those signs over time. Right. It is a maintenance thing, meaning you have to get it done a couple times throughout the course of the year. But there are new neuromodulators that are coming to the market. I've been fortunate enough to be one of three doctors that are working with the revamps, and they're supposed to be coming out with a new botulinum toxin that lasts longer than than Botox. So, you know, it may be possible to to get to the point of having once a year treatment, and that should be coming up soon once they get their full clearance from the FDA. So I'm excited about that aspect and to be one of the few people that will have access to it early on. So that's incredible. That's awesome. So moving right along, I know we've we've touched on it a bit in terms of how media and, and, and TV and reality TV has really influenced the mindset towards aging and perfection. And we know that, you know, a lot of folks may struggle with self-esteem and just not feeling good enough or not feeling like the skin that they're in is acceptable or that they're, there's always this moving target of perfection that they're having to push and to attain. What are your best practices in terms of those folks uh, or people that are kind of struggling with that or really in their head about their presentation or their um, how they feel about themselves? Is it best practice that y'all um, refer folks to see a psychotherapist to prepare them is that a part of your protocol? Yeah. So so for patients that have are asking for something that I think is unreasonable or they don't seem to have the best grip on what they're doing, I usually will send them to a, a psychotherapist or psychologist just because I think it's very important to get all of those issues sorted out before you have surgery. Because afterwards, you're not only dealing with that mental aspect, you're at, you're dealing with the physical aspect that they have to recover from. And that physical aspect may exacerbate the mental kind of issue more and more. Right. So I have, go ahead. No, because what I'm saying is that I think that so many people, whether it's plastic surgery, whether it's uh, weight loss, whether it's something that is physically transformative, a lot of times people think that if I get to here and if I achieve this particular look, that somehow magically I am going to be a boss and feel just as incredible about who I am. And the reality of it is that for many, it can be anticlimactic in the sense of, oh, I've achieved this, but why am I still feeling what I'm feeling? Yeah, I think that has really been exacerbated 
by the influx of reality TV. I think one of the aspects that people often don't understand about reality TV is that just because it's branded reality doesn't mean that it's real. And I think one of the aspects that people should really understand is that millionaires get sad too. People that are wealthy, that you look up to, that are in the spotlight, also can feel lonely and unfulfilled. And I think those are general human feelings that status, wealth, and kind of whatever aspect you want to add to it doesn't change it. So you have to be able to attack it and understand it in your own being, no matter who you are. So I think until people understand that aspect, it makes it very difficult or the reality TV makes it very difficult for for people to understand that the feelings that they feel are what normal people feel. As if there are feelings that run deep in terms of low self-esteem and and not feeling good enough, low self-worth, that those things really need to be addressed and not glossed over because there's value in the work that you do, but you, you definitely need to be in the right headspace to receive whatever physical transformation that is going to come out of it. Yeah. So in terms of you've had an incredible journey in terms of your career and personally and and professionally, has there ever been like a particular setback in life that you now in, in retrospect can see that it was the catalyst for a major breakthrough or a major success? I guess I, I view things, I think, differently as a Christian. I think there are things that are that are disappointing, but sometimes I, I, I feel as though if it didn't go through for me, God did not want me to, to go through that as the avenue. And I've started now as opposed to becoming discouraged as, you know, for not doing something or not getting something to seeing what God wants for me to actually do. Right. I feel like he if I follow him. The course that he takes me to will not only be the best, it will be what I needed to have happen to me. Right. I'll say one of the stories that I look at a lot is the life of Joseph and how he lived a life somewhat of privilege with his father and how his when his brothers sold him into slavery, essentially, and he went to Egypt, how that could have appeared to be the end of a story. But I think the things that he experienced there developed his character and developed his his leadership abilities and developed his connection with God more so that when he was needed, he was able to function in the way that he was planned to to be. So that's the way I look at things now. And I mean that's that's the that's the biggest thing for me. I think I think from whenever I see anything that is I view as a, as a setback. I look at it and say, hey, this is minor and the path that God wants me to go is different. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what are your go-to coping strategies to decompress or to keep yourself mentally and emotionally and spiritually strong? I like to, when I drive home, sometimes I'll drive without the radio on just so I can kind of hear my thoughts. I talk to my wife and talk to my, my friends. 
my dad over this time has become a lot more like a friend. And, and a lot of times I'll talk out issues with him. I have some guys who are who are real friends of mine. I view just like family and I talk to them about things as, as well as my little brother. But I think, you know, strong counsel is really good in terms of trying to deal with the things that we face on a daily basis. Because I think life <laughs> sometimes throws some curveballs at you and it, it can be difficult to manage just as one person. The other thing is, I, I, and when you mentioned kind of spiritual health, I have a good church family. And I think it's, it's, it's a little bit different now with, with COVID and some of the churches being out, but we still do get together on, from an online basis and, and talk to people. But I, I can't wait until we're able to do a lot more in-person things again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the greatest joys of being a husband and a father. One of the biggest things in terms of being married for me, when I when I saw my, my wife give birth, I really realized how strong of a person she is. I'd always been attracted to Katrina, not just physically, but because of her caringness and givingness or the, her ability to care for others and give to others and give of herself was just amazing. And when she was going into labor, I thought initially she was like, man, I'm in a lot of pain. And I was thinking, man, this is just the beginning of this. And this is how it's going to go. It's going to be rough. As time went on, I realized that the she, she had progressed a lot further than we thought that she had without real pain medication. And that's when I realized, I was like, man, she did this almost natural. And I realized how strong she was as a person. So that, that's been great. I think the other thing, um, being married to somebody who is a friend, as they grow and change, you grow and change and you are there for each other through the highs and lows of life. I think that's that's one thing that's fantastic. You have, you have somebody who you can you, you can really depend on. And that's been a that's been a great asset to handle to have being married. The other thing is that you know in life you don't realize that you're not perfect until someone points it out to you. <laughs> <laughs> I think having her as somebody who's a critical eye that views things in a different way that I, than I do is also super beneficial. And I'll, I'll tell you an example, and this is kind of just a vague example, just, just communication, the way that you say things and what you're trying to convey. We go back and forth helping each other in terms of formulating things to say to other people because we view the aspects of communication differently. Right. And I think it helps us to be more effective communicators when we work together on those things. Absolutely. And a fatherhood. You know, fatherhood has been great, too. It has really given me a lot more respect and love for my parents and what they did, because I feel like these guys must have been super parents because I never really saw them tired or have that look of frustration like they're going to give up in their eyes. And I feel those things strongly every day, like being tired and not having enough time to do A, B, and C, but they found a way to do those things. So it constantly pushes me to try to be able to achieve those things because I know that they're possible. Right. So it, it's great to have 
my daughter. She's five years old. And to have a long day and have your daughter come up and give you a hug and give you a kiss and want to spend time with you is fantastic. A friend of mine told me to um, enjoy that for as long as possible, because by the time they turn 16, you you just get the what's up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's I definitely tell young parents seize every moment, seize every moment. <laughs> You've got two beautiful queens there in the house. Yeah. So we're at the rapid fire part, and so okay. first one is: What would you tell to your 18 year old self about life? To enjoy life, have a little bit more fun, meet a lot more people. You have some more time. Gotcha. Favorite movie? It could be. Yeah, so I actually am, am a am a movie person. Uh-huh. I I have a couple favorite movies, but it's between Braveheart, Gladiator, and The Five Heartbeats. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting combination. Nights like this. <laughs> Too funny. Too funny. Yeah. Okay, so if you could break bread with three influential people, past or present, who would you choose and why? Wow, that's a, that's a that's a great question. So I think in terms of influential people, this is going to seem a little bit a little bit odd. But I think one person that I would really like like to be able to sit down and eat with is Daniel. I think for a biblical character. And I think one of the things is that when I look at the the Bible and the imagery of the different visions that he was given, it would be interesting to know in what detail and how graphic those things were. I think that's that's something that's very, very, very interesting to me. I think another person that I would like to to sit down and just be in their presence and kind of understand what they went through and what they were thinking is Martin Luther King. I think being a, a Morehouse man and being in this environment where I've, you know, been in a chapel that bears his name and seen mm-hmm. statues with him and talking about kind of school school stories based on on his life and then also seeing his impact in the civil rights movement it would be interesting to know you know what the person was like and how his life kind of shifted into the civil rights movements and then kind of like how he balanced all of those other things that that were happening to him with his family and with church and with everything else. I think that would be interesting. Yeah. And then lastly, I think, like I told you, I, I always wanted to be a senator or in the political realm. So I think sitting down and this is going to be a little bit different, but I, I would love to have a have a dinner with all of the living presidents and just talk to them kind of about their the things that they went through, things that were secret that they couldn't tell people and how it made impacts onto what their decisions were, what it was like to actually live in the White House. Because I think, you know, that's that's one thing that a lot of people will not get a chance to experience. And I don't know when they're going to have Capitol and White House tours ever again, uh, considering all the things that are happening now. But I remember taking a tour of the White House as a kid. And when I met Bill Clinton, our audience was at the White House and we were in the Rose Garden. 
and some of the other rooms there. What it's actually like to live in in that space, the day in the life. Absolutely. I'm definitely curious myself. Favorite destination in the world? So <laughs> this is this is gonna be so I the place that I love the most is Cabo San Lucas. And okay. it's 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 a little bit different, but I think you know, one that I, I like is that you know, a lot of the beaches at, at Cabo are not really swimmable beaches. So you can be at a beach almost like by yourself because I think if you actually go swimming in some of that water, you probably get taken out by a current and probably die. The beaches there, I think once you get off the shore about 10 feet, it drop, or 10 feet from shore or 20 feet from shore, the depth of the ocean is like 20,000 feet. So it's a interesting place. I had fun there and I would like to go back, but my wife doesn't like to go back to the same place multiple times. So, <laughs> so as a Caribbean and with your Jamaica Jamaican influences, what would you say is your favorite Jamaican meal? Oh wow! So my my favorite Jamaican meal. So I it, it, it's it's a tight race between good jerk chicken and and curry goat, but that's that's where it is. The unfortunate thing that has changed for me now is that I'm vegetarian. So I don't know I don't know what that means anymore. You know what I mean? Cuz I said I have to find I have to, I have to find something something that is is uniquely Jamaican and also vegetarian, but that used to be my thing. That was your jam. Oh, yeah. What about and what, also, rice and peas or but, curry cabbage yeah. or plantain? Yeah, rice and peas and plantain were were are are, are great things, but it, the the curry goat and the uh, and the jerk chicken used to seal it seal the deal for me. Exactly. Oh, you know, another thing would be a good fried dumpling. I like good fried dumpling okay. festival. That's 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 great. Okay. Uh, okay. You know what's it, what's sorrel? But I like my sorrel mm-hmm. mixed with a little bit of ginger beer. <laughs> Mm, that sounds good, actually. That sounds good. So one last question, and that is, if you could create a billboard for millions of people to see, what would your message be? In, in terms of life or plastic surgery or what? It could be anything. Remember, this is millions of people to see. What would your message be? It would be... It could be a model. It could be a text. It could be. Yeah. So it, it would just be great husband, great dad, conscientious surgeon, good friend. Mm. All right. Oh, one more thing. Why don't you tell me about your current projects, Dr. Bailey? So I am starting a, a med spot and my practice is called Bailey Cosmetic. And I'm I'm excited about it. It's a little bit nerve wracking starting it during a pandemic. There's a great need that people have for skincare and some of the other things that we'll be offering, like traditional Mm -hmm. things like Botox and fillers and microneedling and some hair removal, facials and peels. And I think all of those things really are helpful for patients. One of the things that I've, I've noticed is that people are leaving their face on their mask. (laughs) 
there's so much so much makeup and lipstick you're left behind on the, on their mask when they could just work a little bit during this time of wearing a mask on their actual face and i think if you work on your on your face you'll have you will wear less and less makeup I think the other thing that I've seen too, I've actually had a lot of guys that want some minimal things that help improve the appearance of their face, whether they have dark lines or dark circles under their eyes that can be helped with, you know, some under eye treatments or the wrinkles like Botox that would help or fillers for those deeper wrinkles that they have. It, it's amazing how how those little changes can actually improve your appearance, improve your some of your self-confidence and just kind of your overall well-being. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. What do you recommend for like folks for the under eye people that are perhaps struggling with sleep? I know that that's a big thing, especially during this time of pandemic and just uncertainty. Yeah. So I've actually just talked to a bunch of people about kind of just sleep in general. So I think, you know, one of the things that I've been doing for myself to make sure that I get good sleep and and also kind of help wrinkle reduction is sleeping now on my back. Um, I think when you sleep on your face, you can have a little extra swelling in your face and that constant expansion and contraction helps to increase your wrinkle formation. So sleeping on my back is one, trying to get a good night's sleep. So that's actually a harder thing to do for some people now, just because of the added stress of different things. We've actually been using Calm which is a, a, a over-the-counter product. It's basically magnesium in a powdered form. I think you can get it from Sam's or you can order it online. I just mixed that with some water before bedtime, and it's been helping me really sleep very well throughout the course of the night, and it's yeah. natural. Okay. And that's calm. I'm going to have to check that yeah, out. It, it, Does it have some anti-inflammatory properties in there? No, I think the I think the magnesium just helps relax your muscles and helps relax you over overall. So I think that's how, okay. how it works. And it's not habit forming or anything like that. I think some people get used to taking like Unisom and some of these other over-the-counter products and even Ambien, which is a prescription mm-hmm. product. But I think, you know, the, some of those things have side effects that kind of either make you jittery during the day or memory loss issues. But the the calm so far has been has been working and really helps me feel really well rested when I wake up in the morning. But in terms of folks that are struggling with the, kind of the under eye oh, yeah. puffiness so, so, or, or so under eye yeah product that we use now, there's a a company called IS Clinical, and I use their their under eye or youthful eye complex. It helps to improve the quality of your skin. It has some peptides in it and um, I think hyaluronic acid that also help to improve the thickness of your skin. And then they have some ingredients in there that also help with the dark appearing circles. So I think that is actually that in combination with a mild amount of filler underneath the eye actually helps with that dark circle. Because I think one of the things where you see that circle, that's where your obicularis muscle, which is the muscle that goes around your eye, helps you close your eye. That's where that muscle is anchored or has this anchor point to the bone. So when you do some filler there, it changes the angle, the appearance where you're actually looking at it. 
and it reduces the distance from your eyelid to your cheek. So it kind of helps reduce the appearance of that circle. But I think using that in combination with the youthful eye complex also improves the skin and it's like a more bang for the buck. Awesome. This is great information for us to have. And so where can folks connect with you or follow you? So yeah, so I, I um, my practice is Crawford Plastic Surgery, so they can they can follow us at the Crawford Plastic Surgery um, Facebook page. I also have a Dr. Stephen Bailey Facebook page as, as well, so you can follow me there. And then I have an Instagram, which is also Dr. at Dr. Stephen Bailey. That's D R S T E V E N Bailey which is B-A-I-L-E-Y. Coming soon that we have coming online, we have Bailey Cosmetic, which is, which is the, the med spa brand. And the thing that's going to be really great from that is that patients can book their own appointments. We're also planning to have virtual consultations. So we're trying to accommodate people in this COVID time frame. So we will have our estheticians evaluate you from the comfort of your own home. And oh, wow, that's yeah, it's 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 fantastic. The, the girls that we have here are the, the ladies that we have as our estheticians. They have years and years of experience, not only with consultations for non-invasive things like ointments and creams and stuff like that, but also with more invasive things like laser treatments and microneedling and massage and scar treatments and stuff like that. So, I mean, they're a wealth of knowledge and to be able to provide that from the comfort of your own home will be fantastic. And our new model, what we're planning to do is to be able to provide you some of these same things that you would get in person at a med spa from the comfort of your home. So they should look out for, if you if you follow the Bailey Cosmetic Instagram page or the Dr. Stephen Bailey Instagram page, you can see when we put on our live events, we're going to have one actually on Tuesday of this week, just talking about some some good skincare option, options, and we'll be doing a live facial skin peel there. And I think oh, wow. what, we're, what we're planning to do is be able to give away free evaluations and then also be able to ship products to your home so that you can do a home facial under the direction of our estheticians. So it's a a new, it's a new concept, but one thing that I I like it, I like it. I'm interested because I was getting ready to ask you about uh, your products and how to access that. So I I think one of the the great things about, about doing, you know, about this pandemic, when I say great things, I think when you're under great stress and under great pressure, you have a couple options. One of them is to crumble and the other one is to adapt. We've chosen to adapt and find new and innovative ways to be able to give our customers great experiences. Wow. I love it. I love it. Such a wealth of knowledge, and I look forward to this episode dropping because I know that folks are going to get so much out of it. And on that note, Dr. Bailey, this has been an incredible pleasure, and I thank you so much for taking time out your busy schedule to join me on Interior Motives today. It's been so great. Loved everything that you had to say. 
Thank you. Thank you, Shaylin. I really appreciate the opportunity. And it was great talking to you as well. You guys have a great day. Thank you so much. You too. And love to the family. All right. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye. I had such a great conversation with Dr. Stephen Bailey. He is such a wealth of knowledge and information, so many insights, and I'm thankful that he was able to take time out of his busy schedule to share with us. So some recommendations from Dr. Bailey, if you are someone that is considering having a cosmetic or aesthetic surgical procedure, Dr. Bailey recommends that first you find a board-certified plastic surgeon. And number two, find a surgeon that communicates well, that you get along with. Number three, understand the risk of your surgery and think about how those risks would impact your life if they actually happen. Number four, plan for your recovery. Make sure you have enough help or support post-op. And number five, plan financially. Make sure you have enough savings to cover the unexpected or things that you don't anticipate. And for patients who may have unrealistic goals or are unclear about their motives, in addition to folks that have had multiple plastic surgeries and multiple revisions in a short period of time, Dr. Bailey strongly recommends that you seek the counsel of a licensed professional and or psychotherapist. If you have further questions for Dr. Bailey or if you want to set up a consultation appointment, I will leave his information and website in the show notes. Again, Dr. Bailey's website and contact information will be left in the show notes, so please check it out. And again, listeners, it has been awesome having your continued support, and I thank you again for tuning in. Please reach out to me if you have suggestions or you yourself may want to be a guest. Reach out to me at interiormotivespodcast at gmail.com. And again, that's interiormotivespodcast at gmail.com. So remember to take good care of yourself and your loved ones. And until next time, be well and be blessed.